Can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story about Christmas? Is it too early to talk about Christmas? Never. I know your favorite holiday. So um, I come from kind of a larger family. Part of us is in California. Part of us is centered up in Seattle. And, and uh, I didn't get together with the Seattle family very often, maybe once or twice a year, usually around holidays. And I have this really distinct Christmas memory from a family gathering. And I don't remember the whole thing. I just remember weird parts of it. So um, I remember, for example, uh, a green, like, plastic tablecloth on the table of this particular Christmas gathering, probably placed there specifically for me because I'm a messy eater. Um, I remember green jello. Not like, yay, green jello, but like, anybody? Oh, I'm going to offend somebody. Um, That's all right. Not if it's you or the one I'm offending. Not just like, oh, look, green jello. We put it in a bowl, but like, I can't say this. You know the green jello with just like everything in it? There's like orange rinds and there's, there's like, I think there's cottage cheese and, and, and somebody like, like put cat hair. I just, I, I remember one of those jellos in a mold. I don't know why. I, I remember, listen, if that's what you bring to the Christmas gathering, God bless you and Jesus loves you. Um, I probably won't eat it. Um, I remember my mom leading us in Christmas carols on her 12-string guitar as, as a, like a six or seven-year-old. And I remember when it was time to go. And I only remember bits and pieces of it, but my brother is four years younger than I am, so he's about three or four. And my family, you know what it's like when you're trying to get all your kids out the door, and there were three of us trying to get them in the car, it's time to go. And One of my parents, I don't remember which one, told us, hey, say goodbye to your uncle. And my younger brother, I think from about the door, turns to the living room and says in like a 45-year-old voice, even though he's like four, looks at my uncle and goes, so long, stupid. Except he didn't say stupid. What he said was much, much worse than stupid. And time just seems to stop, right? Like, I don't know what I did. I just know I was alone. Like, my parents are gone. Like, in the car, and the engine's running, and I feel like I probably had to run to catch the car as it was in motion because nobody wanted to acknowledge what had just happened, which is completely fair. Now, I was a little kid. I may completely misremember this. My mom will have equal time next Sunday uh, to defend the family honor. Long story short, if you're in a family, you are guaranteed to experience some super awkward moments. It's just going to get weird at some point, right? As we turn to, to this part of the book of Galatians, Paul is experiencing his own awkward moment with the church. How we handle those awkward moments, how we respond, whether we press in or pull back, go a long way to determine the kind of family that we will be. And as I'm reading through Paul's letter and I'm looking at his example and I'm, I'm examining my own life, I, I feel like what we're going to talk about this morning has a lot to do with us choosing to be the kind of family that God wants us to be. There is even, and I don't use the word lightly, uh, there's a bit of a prophetic element where I feel like God is saying, I'm inviting you to become or grow into this kind of a people. So we're going to talk about Paul, we're going to talk about weirdos in Galatia, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to relate to one another as a healthy and a loving family. And hopefully it won't be triggering for anyone and their Christmas memories. Can we do that? All right, here we go. Um, as, As we read this, I want you to listen not only to Paul's words, 
But I want you to hear his heart as he is writing to these people. He starts in verse 8. He says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I was an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone's eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your eyes, your lives. Excuse me. I wish I were there with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I, I don't know how else to help you. Can, can you hear the frustration? Like almost that sense of impotency in, in Paul's voice. He's like, I don't know what else to do. But, but we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul frustrated? Is he frustrated because the Galatians have turned their back on him? No. He's frustrated because the Galatians, people he loves, are actually hurting themselves. Paul is genuinely concerned for their spiritual well-being. He's writing this letter not trying to win an argument, though Paul is a fabulous debater. He's writing this argument because people who he deeply loves are making decisions that are going to be leading them further away from God. And rather than say, listen, your life is your life and step away, Paul is pressing into the relationship because he loves them and he wants them to come to a place of freedom. Even if it means somewhere along the way, they become angry with Paul. I want to highlight just a couple of observations from this text and some of the questions that it's causing me to ask myself. Let's look at verse 8 again. Before you, you Gentiles knew God, he tells them, you were slaves to the so-called gods that don't even exist. So now that you want to know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? He taught them how to follow Jesus in love and grace. And then others came alongside and said, no, the true way to worship is by observing the law. And the law began to take the focus of the relationship. It actually became a focus of their worship. And the reason Paul is concerned is that what you worship will captivate you. It will capture your heart, it will capture your thinking, and it will affect your time. There is no such thing as a passive response to our worship. Now, now we can read that phrase, whatever you worship will captivate you, and we can get really nervous. 
and we can start doing the self-assessment. Okay, how much time did I sp spend playing video games yesterday? I, I watched 24 hours of ESPN. Is that idolatry? Or we can go, holy cow, Jesus has given us a way to make sure that our lives are lived aligned with him. I don't have to spend a lot of time examining everything else I'm giving my attention to. If I come to the place where I feel like something else has captured my heart, I simply need to turn and begin to worship Jesus because what I worship will capture my heart. And so I'm reading this going, if I want to grow in my depth of understanding of my relationship with Jesus, if I want to walk into freedom, if I want to experience liberty, if I want to know what it's like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, if I want God to use me in ways that I can't even imagine, my starting place is to worship Jesus. And every time I feel something else crowding in, fear, anxiety, uncertainty that is rising up to capture more of my attention, which is idolatry, my response is not always to fight hard about that, against that thing. It's to press into the person in the presence of Jesus. And as I press into the person and the presence of Jesus, he begins to capture my heart. He begins to captivate me. He begins to focus my thinking. He begins to lead me forward. And Paul realized that, that the Galatians were exchanging a dynamic relationship with Jesus for a system of rules called legalism, and they were spending all of their time and all of their energy making sure they were following the right rules the right way. But that is not how we come into a dynamic relationship with the God of heaven and earth. We do that through and only through his son, Jesus. So if we want to walk in freedom, we don't do it by making sure we are following all the right rules the right way. We do it by beginning to worship Jesus with how we serve and what we read and what we listen to. The reason Pastor Wendy this morning is encouraging us to speak out our own words about Jesus, why we appreciate him, why we value him, who he is to us, is because that draws us into his presence. He begins to, to catch our, our, our thinking, our understanding, our heart in a unique and a powerful way. What we worship will captivate us. So, all right, John, that makes sense. What do we do when the people around us aren't living into that reality? What do we do when the people around us are being captivated by other thoughts or other things? What is my responsibility as a family member if I see people struggling? If, if they're walking out of the freedom that God has given them and, and into some sort of bondage, what do I do? Well, Paul will tell us. Listen to his heart again. Verse 11. Guys, I'm afraid for you. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Paul is not just having an awkward moment with Galatians. He's having a disagreement. They are seeing the world differently. They are not aligning in their thinking or in their behavior. Any healthy relationship, any healthy relationship has the potential for disagreement. If you 
are in a relationship with someone and you're like, man, we are super tight, we are super close, we've been sharing life together forever, and you never disagree, I would suggest perhaps your relationship is not as deep or as healthy as you might think it is. Wendy and I have been married for 25 years. We've gotten really good at disagreeing. There are a lot of things that we see differently. So you're going to have disagreement. And as a family, we have a responsibility to press in to that disagreement. But how you press into that disagreement, how you have those conversations is profoundly critical. I've learned a lot in those 25 years of the right way and the wrong way to disagree with someone. If you begin to talk with someone about a place where you may feel they are falling short in your relationship, if anything about you has the appearance of inequality or position, it will derail the conversation before you ever get started. If I go to talk to Wendy about something where we are out of alignment or out of disagreement, and my starting place is I'm bigger than you and so, this conversation is never going to be a healthy one. And Wendy will quite quickly show me that size does not always matter. That woman is strong, and she is tough, and she won't back down when she knows I'm out of bounds. We have to come to one another as brothers and sisters as equals. Paul is correcting some things for the Galatians, but he uses the language brother and sister six different times in this letter to them. And he says to them, guys, I'm afraid for you. I am, I'm afraid of what this is going to cost you, that this is somehow going to lead you outside of a dynamic relationship with Jesus. And it's the fear of what it will cost you and my love for you that is compelling me to have this conversation. Now, sometimes we have conversations with people we love, but the conversation is not loving. Or we are not actually committed to their good. We can be disappointed in people's behavior and make it more about us than it is about them. I'll prove it to you. How many of you in this room are parents by the raising of your hand? Just at some point, I had a kid. Okay. At some point, I'm fairly certain one or more of those children in public had an epic meltdown. Just like, get thee behind me, Satan, kind of an epic meltdown. And if you're anything like me, your first response to that kid was, knock it off! Your first response is not to parent the child, it's to preserve your reputation. Everybody's going to think I'm a horrible parent. Be quiet, get in the car. I'll give you something to cry about. That, that was always super helpful. Pretty sure they already got something to cry about. In those moments, my first thought was not, how do I parent my child? My first thought was, what you are doing reflects poorly on me. And Paul, in his wisdom and in his love for them, could have said to the Galatians, we're done because of how bad you are making me look. But his primary concern was for them. And so he pressed into the relationship, honestly, like, guys, this isn't good. But he was concerned that people he loved were losing their freedom. This is what it means to be part of a healthy family. This is what it looks like to be part of a healthy church family. It's to be able to say, I am more concerned for your good than I am my own. 
Now, that's only possible if you and I are walking in step with the Spirit because my natural inclination is always going to be towards selfishness. But as we come to the Father through faith in Christ, as we receive His Spirit, the next chapter is going to begin to talk about the things that the Spirit of God does in us and then does through us. And one of those things is that we begin to consider others' needs above our own. That can only happen by the Spirit of God. It is an unnatural response. But it's a critical response for a family. Paul says to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, guys, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. A healthy church family is one that looks for the needs of others and moves to meet them. It's one that does not discount those who are not like us. It's a church that says, God has placed people in my church family for me to care for them before he has called them to serve me. This is the kind of church family that God is building here. Paul says to the Galatians, I have become like you. I have become like you is language of equality in the ancient world. He is appealing to people that he led to faith, people that he discipled, people he taught as equals. Now, he is more educated. He is more widely traveled. He is certainly more influential in this kind of growing Jesus movement than they are. But he doesn't hold it over them. He doesn't look at them and say, I've been saved a lot longer than you have, so you just need to do what I say. He says, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, I've become like you. I am a brother in Christ. I am no more. I am no less. Every time you hear Paul writing to people in the church, you will hear the language of equality. Equal before the throne. He will, he will make the point. Never mind. i got to keep going. He's just told them we're co-heirs with Christ. All of us the same. So then I'm thinking about this idea that Paul became like them and didn't require them to become like him, and I have to ask myself the question, how well am I doing? How well am I doing? Paul didn't require them to become like him in order to experience grace and love. And he was raised his entire life believing that these people were beneath him, that the only way they could become acceptable is if they changed and became more like him and less like themselves. But when Paul met Jesus... When Jesus covered over all of his sin, all of his shame, all of his dysfunction, something happened in his heart, not only in relationship to God, but in relationship to those around him. Worshiping Jesus changes our heart for the other, however you may define that other. So Paul put himself in places and spaces where people didn't see the world the way he did. Now, sometimes... Sometimes we can place an expectation on people who have not experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus to behave as if they had. Another way of saying that is we expect people who have not surrendered their lives to Christ to behave as if they had, which is horribly unfair. How good a job did you do of being Christ-like before you came to Christ? Anybody? Not great. And yet sometimes we expect that people, in order to to have relationship with us or to, to join us in church or to fellowship or be served to us, have to look more like we do. And Paul would say to us as a church family, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. 
you can't expect people who are far from God to act as if they are close to God. Especially when Paul goes to great lengths to say that before we surrender our lives to Christ, before we're born again, we are slaves to sin. You and I were as well. So for me to expect someone in my community to live as if they are not enslaved by the sin that they are exhibiting is horribly unfair. I couldn't do it. Why should I expect them to do it? Is this making sense? Because you got to look on your face like, did you really just say that? I just want to make sure we're still friends. In order for us as a people to be a people who brings others to Jesus, we have to willingly and lovingly embrace people where they are without an expectation that they somehow become different. We simply cannot do that. Jesus doesn't see categories or classes of people. But if I'm honest, I try to be honest, sometimes I do. And there are a number of different ways that we can classify people. We can, we can do it by gender, by race, by political party, by socioeconomic status. We, I mean, there's, there's so many different opportunities. And so the way I am praying for me and for us is God help our hearts to grow so we can easily come alongside of people who are not like us. I want to be someone that when you look at me, when you hear me, you hear the words of love and affirmation from Jesus. You don't have to feel like you need to somehow become a 51-year-old white man in order to relate to me because our commonality is our shared co-heirness with Christ. And I don't want people in, I, my heart broke. I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm down in Santa Barbara and I'm, I'm getting, getting, you know, like ready for the surgery and I had this one more test and it came out, it was great, thank you. Um, but I've been with this guy for like 45 minutes and we're walking out, we had the best time. We're laughing together, we're joking together. And as I get down the hallway toward the exit, he goes, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he stopped talking to me. Somewhere in his history, someone who looks or sounds like me or claims a faith that I claim mistreated him horribly. How do I know? Because as soon as he found out that I follow Jesus and I'm a pastor, he no longer felt safe to engage in a relationship with me. Guys, that's not uncommon. I mean, we can lose sight of that sometimes because we're surrounded by people who think like we do. But you step outside of the walls, and and there are folks who are being told, God hates you because. God is mad at you because. You need to be more like me because. You need to vote like me because. And if you don't, God hates you. The only way that we can deconstruct that kind of thinking is if we are a living, vibrant example of the opposite. Jesus got in trouble for hanging out with people who didn't act like him, didn't worship like him, didn't follow God. They were sinners. They were prostitutes. Sometimes they were pagans, and people got mad. And here's the beauty of the story. Jesus was able to be in those spaces and around those faces without ever compromising his relationship with God the Father or his spiritual integrity. He went to the cross as our sinless sacrifice. You don't catch sin by hanging out with someone who's sinning. If you did, y'all would be infected right now by the person sitting next to you. 
Can we be real? Okay? When Paul said he became like them, he wasn't saying he joined in their worship of idols, but he's saying he met them where they were. May God give us a heart of empathy and compassion that allows us to meet people in their sin and in their pain, inside the church and outside the church. Guys, if people see us respond poorly to people outside of the church in their sin, do you think anybody in our church will ever confess their sin? No, because we've already demonstrated. You're not like me, so I'm going to reject you. We must be a people of grace and mercy, compassion, and hope. Okay, I'm going to give you, can I give you one or two more thoughts? I'm going to anyway, so thank you. Um, oh, so here's, here's the question that, that, that's, that's led me to this week. Do I see others' failure as an opportunity to bring healing or an excuse to reject them? Do I see their failure as an opportunity to bring healing or an excuse to reject them? Paul had every right. What, what you need to understand about the timing of Paul's planting the church in Galatia is he came from a town called Lystra. In Lystra, there were a group of people who stoned him and left him for dead. Paul goes to Galatia. He plants a church. Those people who stoned him and left for dead were of the same party that is coming and corrupting the thinking of the Galatians. So people didn't just choose to not believe Paul. They actually chose to embrace the teaching of those who were persecuting him. So if anyone had the right to say, you have disappointed me, you have failed me, you're outside the will of God, I'm out, it was Paul. This wasn't just a disagreement about things. This is you have embraced the teaching of my enemy. And yet Paul's love for them was so strong, so deep, so profound, he pressed into the awkwardness of their broken family dynamic to bring healing. Here's a last thought. Verse 13. Surely you remember that when I was sick, excuse me, that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. I don't believe Paul ever intended to plant a church in Galatia. I don't, I don't think that was his intent. And I, and I get that from part of this text. Galatia in the Roman Empire was a region of the world that you went to to recover from illness. And what Paul is saying in this part of the letter is, remember when I came to you, how sick I was. And there are different schools of thought about what that sickness might have been. We don't know for sure. Some, some thought that Paul might have had malaria. Uh, some thought that he might have had a particular eye disease that was really yuck. Uh, still others say he was recovering from being stoned and left for dead in Lystra. I've never seen someone stoned and left for dead kind of walking down the street, but it probably looked not great. What we do know is that whatever he was wrestling with was disgusting. It was physically off-putting. The, the NIV says, my illness was a trial to you, and yet you didn't, you didn't reject me. You still pressed in. And what they did is they then received the beauty of the Word of God that allowed them to come to a place of health and healing. Last week, we talked about 
Don't allow your brokenness to discount you from being a person of healing because God works in and through your own brokenness. But what Paul is expressing here means that the opposite is also true, that we cannot reject people when we perceive brokenness in them because if we do, we will miss the beauty of what God wants to do through their brokenness or through their pain. You don't have to be whole to be a healer. And so not only do I need to trust Jesus to use my brokenness, to work through my brokenness to bring healing or restoration to others, I must be willing to embrace others in their brokenness with the understanding that I will likely receive from them something that God wants to do in or for me. I can't, it's back to the equality. I can't pretend I'm healthier and so God flows from me to them. I need to be open to the beauty and the power of the Holy Spirit working through that person's brokenness to bring healing to me. Weeks ago, Wendy and I were visiting a woman in our church who's in the hospital with stage 4 cancer. And we, we, we walked into a room and she was just in a significant amount of pain. And, and I thought, well, we're going to go over, we're going to see her, we're going to encourage her, we're going to pray for her. She'll be blessed that we came, and then, you know, we'll go home and do whatever we do next. And she began to talk to us in her hospital bed about how Jesus was meeting her, about how her love for him continued to grow, how it never wavered, how God was speaking to her in the hospital room, how he was meeting her in her dreams. And she's saying, I would like to live longer because I want to be a missionary, and I want to take people into the presence of Jesus, but if God chooses not to heal me, that's okay because I'm going to be with him for eternity. And I walked out of the hospital room. I prayed for her. She prayed for me. I walked out of the hospital room, looked at Wendy and said, I want to know Jesus like she does. I, I want to know Jesus like that woman does. We must be a people who looks for the beauty in the brokenness of those around us. Because if God is going to work through my brokenness, he's always going to work through yours. So as I'm thinking about, kind of praying for, trying to listen to Jesus about the kind of family that we become, a kind of people that we can be that are open to the the function and the moving of the Holy Spirit, a, a place where people come and experience hope and healing, a place where those who are here experience hope and healing, where we we live out the restoration and the reconciliation that Christ has, not only for his church, but for all of humanity, this is where my mind goes. These are some of the practical things that I feel like Jesus is inviting me to live out in my own life and to encourage you to live out in your life. There is a, there is a constant thread in our conversations with me and these other pastors, and I'm sure other pastors are having the same conversation. But there is this ever-growing sense that God is up to something beautiful. God is up to something intentional. God is up to something powerful in the city of Lompoc and the surrounding regions. And I can't help but think God is inviting us to become what Scripture says, a unique and a peculiar people, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of people we have yet to meet people whose lives are going to be forever changed, not because they heard me preach, but because they worked alongside you. They met you in the grocery store. 
and they saw in you the kind of person that they could trust with their pain. They saw in you the kind of person that did not require perfection for acceptance, the kind of person that did not require sameness in order to belong. This is what I think God is doing in this space and in this season. So these three questions that I'm asking myself, these three things I need to be able to say yes to in order to be an answer to what God is doing in this space and in this community. Three questions I think we need to be able to answer yes to together to become an expression of God's love and grace and healing. Here's the first one. Will I communicate honestly and lovingly in awkward moments? Or am I going to run to the car? If you run to the car, you'll be loved, but you probably won't grow. Here's what I know about my parents, my family. Now with the benefit of years behind us and, and continued growth and maturity, our response as a family to that same awkward situation would have been quite different. One or both of my parents would have grabbed my, my brother by the ears. He probably would have picked him up together, walked him in and said, nope, apologize. Because we've learned together not to run from conflict and disagreement. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. We grow together this way. So that's my first question. Will I communicate lovingly and honestly in awkward uh, moments? Will I see others' brokenness? Will I see the brokenness of others as a place for God's grace to work? What an opportunity for the power of God to be brought to bear. What, what a powerful opportunity for the love of Christ to come. That's the opposite of rejection, rejecting somebody for their brokenness. And the third question is, will I be willing to see my own brokenness as a place for God's power to work? Others' brokenness leads to rejection. My brokenness leads to shame. Both of them are opportunities for the power of God to be brought to bear in a redemptive and a transformational way. Does this sound like the kind of community, the kind of family that you would like to be a part of? All right, babe, guess we're done here. <laughs> God is building something. God is building something. And these are the kinds of things he will ask of us in order to be a part of what he's building. I want to pray for you. This, this morning settled kind of heavy, yeah? Yeah, not, not a lot of jokes, not a lot of laughing. I think it's because this is kind of important for us to have the Holy Spirit just kind of walk us through. You'll be talking about some of these things in your life groups. Like, how is, how is this resonating with you? How is God leading you? How are you growing in this? But I want to pray for me, and I want to pray for you, that we become these kind of people. Lord Jesus, my prayer for us is that we would never, we would never forget, God, how desperate for your grace we are. Lord, we would never look through arrogant lenses at those around us as if they were candidates for your saving grace, but we no longer needed it. Lord, that's the story of Galatians. We are all so desperate for the grace of Christ. Lord, would you allow us to grow, to become a people who reflect your love, your mercy, your compassion, your empathy, not only to one another, 
in this room, but also to those beyond our walls. God, there are people who are living in such darkness, such brokenness. May we not be a people who point out their darkness and shame them for it, but rather a people who take them by the hand and lead them into the light. Lord God, lead us. We're going to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? I want to speak a blessing over you. One of my favorite passages from Romans 13, and this will be our benediction. If you're here and you're getting baptized, remember the baptism class is out the doors to your right. If you didn't sign up, come hang out anyway. But here's how I'm praying for you this week. This is the blessing I would speak over you. You've heard it before. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Have a great week.